0: I invite you to turn with me to 1 John, chapter 1. Last week, we saw from verses 3 and 4 that John makes the message of Christ, call it doctrine, call it theology. John makes the message about Christ the foundation or the basis of all significant Christian fellowship. He says, for example, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us. In order to create and nurture deep Christian fellowship, you have to talk about who Christ is and what he has done and what he means to you. Now, that's what John begins to do very seriously in verses 5 through 10. Let's try to get the overall structure here first and then go back and unpack the part that we have time to unpack this morning. We'll take this as a preparation for the Lord's table instead of trying to rush it all in here and abuse the table. Three parts, I see, to this text. First, verse 5 gives the message that Christ has given to John. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Second, verses 6 and 7 describe the practical implications of this message. And third, verses 8 to 10 clarify a possible misunderstanding of these applications. Verse 5, the theological foundation. Verses 6 and 7, the practical application. Verses 8 to 10 the necessary clarification. Let's look at them one at a time just briefly. Verse 5, the foundation. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's the bedrock, the foundation, upon which everything else in this letter is built. If you don't grasp and experience what it means that God is light, the rest of this letter probably won't jive. It won't click. It won't happen in your life. Verses 6 and 7 draw out a practical application, negatively first and then positively, from this theological foundation in verse 5. First, negatively. If we say we have fellowship with him, While we walk in darkness, we lie and do not live according to the truth, or literally do not do the truth. So that's the negative implication of the fact that God is light. If you walk in darkness, you lie when you say, I have fellowship with God. Positively, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If God is light, then when we walk in the light, we have fellowship with God and the blood of his son cleanses us from sin. And then comes the clarification. It could be that someone listening to verse 7 and having a perfectionist theology And I think some of the false teachers in the community to whom John was writing did have this perfectionist theology would say, See, even in verse 7, the apostle teaches that once you enter the light, you are cleansed from all sin. You don't have sin anymore. My wife was in a Bible study in Germany, and there was a woman there who said, I don't sin. She pointed to this verse. John sees that coming. He knows that his language can play right into the hands of perfectionist false teachers, and therefore he adds very plainly the clarification in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In other words, the claim to sinlessness is. Self-deception. Instead of denying our sin, verse 9 tells us what we should do with it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then to drive home the point, he repeats verse 8 with stronger language. In verse 10, he says, if we say we have not sinned, We make God a liar, and his word is not in us. In other words, the claim to be sinless is not only self-deception, it's blasphemy. The statement, I have not sinned, is the same as the statement, God is a liar. And that's blasphemy. Now, those are extraordinarily strong words, aren't they? If if it weren't the apostle talking, I can hear somebody today saying, do you have to use such inflammatory language when you're warning people about their error? Come on. God is a liar. Evidently, John thought so much was at stake that he wouldn't tone down the phrase, God is a liar into you, well, how should we say it? Displease your heavenly Father. We live in a day of extraordinarily fragile emotions in America. Everybody is easily hurt, everybody is easily depressed. Everybody is sensitive to criticism. We are an extraordinarily fragile emotional people. And so we hear words like, you make God a liar when you say you have no sin. You say, oh, come on, don't talk like that. Use different language. Use soft language. And this is the apostle of love. My own personal sense of things is that we ought not to adjust scripture to our emotional fragility but that we ought to so hear scripture that we get toughened up a little bit so that we aren't so easily offended by inflammatory language from the Holy Spirit the overall structure then is this Foundation, God is light. Application, walk in the light. Clarification, do not claim to be without sin when you're walking in the light. Now, this morning, I want to focus in mostly on God is light and then allow the application to lead us into the Lord's table And then tonight, there is so much more I want to unpack. And I beg of you to come back and hear it. First, verse 5. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. What does John mean by God is light? I think, first of all, we could say he means God is truth. And I get that from verse 6. This comes... From verse six, where it says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. We lie and do not live according to the and you would have expected him to say light. If you walk in darkness, you don't live according to the. And but he says truth. And so I infer from that substitute of the word truth for light, that basically God is light means God is truth. In other words, God is the source and the measure of all that is true. Or another way to put it would be nothing is truly understood unless it is understood in the light of God in relation to God. What does the Old Testament say? We just read it at the breakfast table two days ago from Proverbs 1 verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, which means if you don't fear God, you don't get to first base in knowledge. That's a stunning thought. If you don't fear the Lord, you haven't begun to know truth, which means, incidentally, that secular education, education that leaves God out of account is a mirage of hope in the wasteland of our culture. It's a mirage. If anybody thinks there's any hope in God-omitting education, there isn't any. Because all the facts that God-omitting people can accumulate are faults in relation to God. They're skewed. They're never all true. Two plus two equals four is not wholly true unless it's brought into relation to God. And if you don't see that, then you have fallen for the secularity of our age that says you can do education without God. John chose the word light, however. He did not choose the word truth in verse 5. Why? Why light? I think that he chose light because it carries a positive connotation that the word truth may not carry for all of his readers. Some readers might hear the word God is truth and think, yes, When you come to God, you find a very foreboding truth, a very uninviting truth, a very dark truth. And John doesn't want his readers to conclude that. He doesn't want them to think that coming to God means coming to a dark truth. And so he uses the word light because it promises that God's truth is full of joy and hope. Let's ponder this for a minute. What, what is valuable about light? What is it that makes light precious? I thought of two things. A negative way of putting it and a positive way of putting it. Negatively, light is valuable because it helps you avoid danger. And positively, light is valuable because it opens up the way to your goals. So, you get there. You get where you want to go. If you walk in the darkness, you might stumble over a log. You might step on a rattlesnake. You might fall off a cliff. You might bang your head against a low hanging branch. When the lights come on, you're saved from that. You can avoid them all. And you can get to your goal. And we all have one goal. We want to be happy to the maximum degree and to the maximum length of time. So when the lights come on, we are saved from all the stumbling blocks that would keep us from reaching our goal. So the first picture that John wants to lay before us is a picture of God who is light. He is all light, and in him there is no darkness at all. I think that means then... That if you draw near to God, you find a God who has no small print, no regrets, no disappointments, no hidden agendas, all light, all freedom, all pathway to the goal of joy and glory in God. The stumbling block of logs and rattlesnakes and cliffs and low branches are all exposed and we're made safe for our goal. He is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Coming to God is not like buying an IBM personal computer. You read in the newspaper that a computer store has IBM PC on sale for less than $2,000 dollars You might say, oh, stumbling blocks are being overcome. My pathway to the goal of excellent word processing is being brightened. There is hope. And then you go to the store. And what you discover in this light is some darkness. That doesn't include a monitor. And it's all darkness with computers without a monitor. doesn't include any disk operating system. It doesn't include any boards. There's a lot of darkness in this bright advertisement. God is not like that. He is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. No small print no qualifying phrases, no missing boards or monitors or disk operating systems. He's all light. You come to God with all your heart and you find nothing but light. That is good news for people who tend to be afraid of God. This is Good news. Isn't it remarkable that the first and central thing John says he heard from Jesus is that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Why did Jesus come? What did he have to show us and tell us? God is light and there's no small print, no qualifications, no regrets, no disappointments when you come to God. You find all light. And then, on the basis of that magnificent good news character of God, comes verses 6 and 7, the practical application. Verse 6 puts it in a negative way. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not live according to the truth. Now, what does it mean to walk in darkness? It's very important here, because if you do it, you can't claim to have any fellowship with God. Chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, give real clear indications of what it means to walk in the light and walk in the darkness. We'll talk a lot about this in two weeks, I think. But let me just point out here, first of all, it says that he who hates his brother... Is in the darkness. And he who loves his brother is in the light. So walking in the light means being a loving person. And walking in the darkness be, means being a person of, of hate, resentment, and bitterness and grudges. But I, I want to go beneath that this morning. Save that implication for later and go beneath it. Notice in verse 8 of chapter 2 it says, "...the darkness..." is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Now, what is this darkness that is passing away that we walk in when we don't have fellowship with God? Drop down to verse 17, and you'll see this word passing away again, and it'll clue us in to what the darkness is. Verse 17 says, the world is passing away, and the lust of it, or the desire of it. So what is darkness or what does it mean to walk in darkness? I would conclude from these connections that walking in darkness means being controlled by the desires for this world instead of desires for God. Being governed, guided, controlled by desires for this world, the lusts of the world, instead of desires for for God. And the reason I think John calls this walking in darkness is because the only way that people can desire the world over God is if they're in darkness, blind. The only reason you choose gravel over, over diamonds is because you're blind. You remember, don't you, from several weeks ago the picture of the man in the dark room, total darkness, and he reaches out with one hand and he feels the The warm soft fur and he reaches out with the other hand and he feels the cold sharp metal edge and so he draws near to the warm soft fur and then the lights go on and he sees that the dark warm fur is the underbelly of a man-eating monster And the hard, cold edge is the sword of the magnificent Christ ready to save. The only reason people draw near to the pleasures of sin is because they're blind. The lights are out in their lives. They only see things in an incredibly limited and distorted way. When you walk in the darkness, you are controlled by desires for the soft, warm, underbelly of pride and prestige and two-second pleasures. All man-eating monsters. It's the very opposite of what it means to fellowship with God. Fellowship with God means that you see things the way God sees them and have the same desires he has. If you're controlled by desires for the world instead of desires for God, it really doesn't matter what you say with your lips, John says, verse 6. It does not matter what you say on Sunday. It does not matter what you say when you fill out a form. You don't have any fellowship with God if you are governed by desires for the world. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not live according to the truth. Now, verse 7 gives the positive side of the application. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his Son Cleanses us from all sin. Walking in the light is the opposite of walking in the darkness. It means seeing reality for what it is, right? Seeing things the way God sees them, feeling responses that God feels, having the values that God has. If God is light and in him is no darkness at all, then he's the bright pathway into fulfillment of our deepest longings and to walk in the light means to see God as the fulfillment of our deepest longings. He's the deliverer from all the dark dangers of the log and the rattlesnake and the the cliff and the low-hanging branch. He is our brightened, lighted pathway to glory and fulfillment and happiness. He's the infinitely desirable one. Notice it says... If we walk in the light as he is in the light. That's a shift from verse 5. Verse 5 says God is light. Verse 6 says he's in the light. That that tends to jar a little bit. And I simply think it means that uh, the light that God is reveals that in that light he is the most desirable object in the world. He is the star in his own sky that is worthy of our admiration and of being Cherished above all other stars. He is the one with surpassing glory. So according to verse 7, two things result now from walking in the light, sharing God's values, seeing things the way God does, delighting in Him above all else. One, the first result is we have fellowship with one another. And the second result is The blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, tonight, I want to go into great detail in this verse and the ones that follow especially. There is so much here for our faith and our obedience that is tremendously crucial to understand. But this is a good point to begin to direct our attention to the Lord's table. There is cleansing available for all sin. Underline the word all. Because there are people here this morning who have sins that are large. And only a large promise of grace could cover them. And this is a large promise of grace. All sin can be cleansed. That's the first thing. Second, It cost Jesus his life to make this promise. That's what the word blood means. Blood is what he poured out in giving up his life. It cost him his life so that I could say to you this morning, all your sin can be covered. Jesus was willing to suffer the death of the cross so that I could hold that out to you this morning. And third, in order to enjoy this cleansing, You have to walk in the light, which means you have to believe that sin is a man-eating monster. And Christ is a gallant and completely adequate and sufficient Savior and Lord. You have to shun the other one as you would if you saw his monstrous capacity to eat you. And you have to embrace the other as you surely would if you saw his power to save and his beauty in all his armor. So the blood of Christ cleanses people who repent and turn to him. And it's for anybody, no matter what the sins have been. So I suspect that there's some serious business that needs to be done in our hearts to prepare ourselves for this meal. And my urgent plea to you is that you Think about the fact that God is light. I really don't think anybody is converted or brought back from the error of his way simply by thinking about the dangers of sin. Nobody is scared into heaven. People can be scared into taking their soul seriously. That's why there are warnings in Scripture. But salvation happens when the lights go on and God is seen as one who is light. One who you want to be with. One whose meadows are all daffodils. Whose sky is not filled with any ominous clouds for all eternity. And so I ask you to meditate on the fact that sin is a monster and God is all light and in him is no darkness at all. And surely the Holy Spirit through this word will wean your heart away from sin and addict you to the grace of God in Jesus Christ.